In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come, <coughs> come on in. <laughs> come on in. <laughs> Just getting started. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. If we want to have that abundant life that Jesus promises, we need three foundational revelations. We need a genuine revelation of the love of the Lordship of Jesus, the love of the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I heard it taught that way a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. I was spouting off in small group the other day about it, and Seth asked me to <coughs> you know, share a little bit about that. It worked out pretty well for him because he was sort of wiped out from, <coughs> from the seeking of Tolkien yesterday. So the person who taught it said, the first revelation is foundational to becoming a Christian in the first place, the lordship of Jesus. If you not have a, if you've not have a revelation of that, that Jesus is Lord, the authority of, of the universe, and you've not bowed your knee to him, you're not actually a Christian. To be a Christian is to confess Jesus as Lord and to believe in his resurrection. That's Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But they taught you can be a Christian your whole life and never have those other revelations of the love of the Father or the power of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. So let's talk about this. What is revelation? Webster's definition of revelation relates to knowledge gained through divine inspiration. It implies God showing us something that's previously been hidden. I think of revelation when objective truth becomes subjective, when truth becomes personal, when reality penetrates our hearts. Revelation is what happened when Simon Peter understood that Jesus is the Messiah. The one, the one the Jewish people have been longing for for hundreds of years. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Peter knew that Jesus is Messiah by revelation from God. In fact, we only know God by revelation. If he didn't disclose himself to us, we have no way to know him. And it's crucial to understand that revelation doesn't contradict what's already revealed. It doesn't contradict scripture. It's consistent with scripture. So if we're Christians and we know, we know in our heads that the Father loves us and the Holy Spirit is powerful probably, but that knowledge only changes our life, when we have an experiential kind of revelation of his love and power. No, I shouldn't put it on the drum. <laughs> so, and as I thought about that teaching from many years ago, about that revelation of the Lordship of Jesus, love of the Father, power of the Holy Spirit, I realized it's a kind of a shorthand way of thinking because to separate those revelations into Father, Son, and Spirit is somewhat artificial. It's God's Lordships, God's love, God's power. Those are foundational attributes of God. So there's also the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus. There's the lordship of the Father and the power of the Father, and there's the love and lordship of the Holy Spirit. If we're believers, we have some sense of God's lordship, and yet for many of us, the love of a father is difficult to actually imagine because many of us have fathers who are absent either through death or divorce or desertion 
For others, our fathers were there, but they weren't very interested in us, or interested in us only insofar as we looked good, made them look good. Some of us have fathers who've seriously mistreated us. So few of us have had authority figures in our lives who have been compassionately committed to our best interests. We've grown up without a secure attachment to a good authority. God being the ultimate authority is the recipient of those expectations. We expect God to be a lot like other authorities we've experienced, especially in childhood. So if we've not had a genuine revelation of God's love for us personally, we're always a little insecure. And if we've not had an experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we can fall away from the faith because we think it's too hard and it's all on our shoulders. So I think there's some value in thinking of it in this way, the, the Lordship of Jesus, the love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have some sense of the Lordship of Jesus, though we might need to remind ourselves of what that, what that means. And there's a lot in popular Christian literature about the love of God, but <clears throat> I think we need to be clear on what love means. But unless you read the charismatic sort of Pentecostal literature, there's not much about the power of the Holy Spirit in classical evangelical media. So I want to talk a bit about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in tongues. But mostly I want us to understand that God must grow us. It's not all on us. If we, co we cooperate with him, but it's his power. I want to define and instruct, but mostly I want to motivate us to pray for more revelation. I want us all to know more deeply the lordship of Jesus, the love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. The abundant Christian life that Jesus promises flows from those revelations. So let's start with the lordship of Jesus. What does that mean? Dictionary.com's definition of lord is a person has, who has authority, control, or power over others, a master, chief, a ruler. Have we fully accepted that Jesus is the ruler of our lives? Ephesians 1, 19 and following says, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he, that is God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is Lord of all, far above all rule and authority on earth, and not only for this age, the history of the earth, but also for eternity future, the age to come. Seth noted last week at the beginning of his sermon that the greatest freedom comes not from where we expect it will come, from following our desires, but from bowing our knee to the Lordship of Jesus. Unexpectedly, to be Jesus' slave is to be free. Submission to his authority is the abundant life. Do we need more revelation specifically of his Lordship in our lives? Are there parts of our hearts that we've reserved for ourselves? Has his Lordship penetrated to the deepest parts of our beings? Do we recognize his claim to our very sense of ourselves? Do we define ourselves in any way that's different than how he defines us? He says, I'm in charge of your life. Do we say, oh, sure, but I decide how to spend my money. He says, you are my child. 
but do we say, well, I feel like an orphan? He says, your authentic self is who I have made you to be. Do you say, but Oprah says my authentic self is to do what I most feel most deeply. We're all just trying to have a good life. We're looking for the path to peace, and yet on TV and the internet and magazines and movies, many messages vie for our submission. Some who want to be followed are just misguided, and some are truly evil. Their motivation doesn't matter, though. What matters is who we listen to. One of the key aspects of the lordship of Jesus, the rule and reign of Jesus, is that he has the authority to define us. That's so contrary to our culture that we may resist that. We don't want to listen. We want to define ourselves. Our autonomy is threatened by his lordship. And yet, we must recognize that doing our own will, doing what all we want to do, is highly overrated. Matthew 11:28 says, Come to me, Jesus is speaking, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To come to him is to submit to him. Autonomy is overrated because there's no rest outside of him. There's no life outside of him. To say Jesus is Lord is to say he has the authority to define us. It also means he has the authority to require obedience. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's Luke 6:46. Obedience is a key issue. Who, who are you obeying? Are you obeying media voices or are you obeying Jesus? Are we living our lives based on the authority of Jesus or in the authority of our own desires? Do we recognize and accept that we belong to Jesus? <coughs> to say Jesus is Lord is to say I belong to him. I submit to him. I will obey him. I am completely surrendered to his will in my life. Not that I perform that will perfectly, but I'm in a process of growth. I accept the validity of his claim on all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I spent years wrestling with Jesus about his lordship. When I became a Christian, I think I believed in my head that he's my master, but it was a process to let him truly define me. I had lots of feelings about myself that were not true. I believed many lies about myself. I felt, I felt worthless, defiled, dirty. Those feelings weren't feelings to me, they were truth. It was who I was. But the reality is that in submission to the Lordship <laughs> of Jesus, I am and you are accepted in the beloved, cleansed by his blood, full of his grace. That's Ephesians 1.6, Hebrews 9.14, and John 1.16. So there's a subtlety to the Lordship of Jesus that I've emphasized here. There's a depth. Our very definition of ourselves needs to be submitted to Jesus' lordship. We obey him when we let him define us. If we've sinned greatly but we've confessed those sins, we can claim his purity. If we've been sinned against and feel great shame, we can claim his wholeness. We belong to him in some way that's deeper than we will ever grasp. Jesus is Lord. Perhaps we need more revelation of his lordship, and maybe we need especially to pray for a revelation of his authority to define us. The second revelation that we need for the abundant life is a revelation of the love of the Father. I said before that many of us have father wounds, and it's not just wounds from a father. It's wounds from a grandfather, wounds from a mother, teachers, any caretaker, 
any authority in our childhood especially that can affect what we expect from, our ul from ultimate authority. We need a genuine experience of God's love. For some of us, that means many times over many years, but for others of us, it can be a single experience that has a lasting effect. We are different, and God will reveal himself to us in a way that makes sense to us. What is love? How does God define love? 1 Corinthians 13 famously defines love as patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, is not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In 1 John 4, John twice says that God is love. So let's rewrite 1 Corinthians 13 to define God's love. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It brings a little emotion to me. It's like, wow, he's not self-seeking. He's not proud. He's not easily angered. Glory. Another aspect of love that is most precious to me is found in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Moses has asked God to reveal himself, to show him his glory, and these are the words that, that are spoken here. And he passed, this God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The first descriptive word that God uses to describe himself is compassionate. After he establishes himself as the authority, the Lord, the Lord, compassion is his first descriptive word. That means so much to me. Because God knows how to communicate, there's a reason compassion is the first word there. It's the deepest aspect of his love. Compassion means to suffer with. It's similar to sympathy and empathy, but it's the strongest word of those three. God loves us compassionately. He suffers with us. God loves us because he has chosen to love us. God loves us because it's his nature to love. We are valuable because he loves us. <laughs> Bye, guys. Have a good time. <laughs> He doesn't love us because we are valuable. We're only valuable because he loves us. To know that the ultimate authority in the universe, God the Father, loves you and me personally is the only solid foundation for the abundant life that God means to give us. And we have many obstacles to receiving that love. Many of those obstacles center around our early experience with authority figures, as I've already mentioned. If you need this kind of revelation, you know, pray to, re pray to recognize the obstacles. Pray for God to remove those obstacles. Pray for a clear and compelling revelation of his love for you. It will change your life. The revelation of the love of the Father changed my life as much as becoming a Christian in the first place. For me, it was a single experience that shifted my foundations. It was October 31st, 1979. 
seven years after I'd begun to follow Jesus. I'd been praying for the revelation of the Father. I think it was after I had heard this original teaching. And this is a quote from my book, Trading Fathers. And I was two years beyond a diagnosis of severe mental illness, so I identified with a schizophrenic woman. In the new issue of Logos Journal magazine, I saw words that changed my life. A chaplain quoted a schizophrenic woman. I've always been taught you should be so good before taking the Lord's Supper. Then he wrote, here was her guilt, a core problem in the lives of persons with mental and emotional problems. In my journal, I wrote, that hits home. I think God's just going to throw me away if I don't do tremendous things for him. Intercession, drama ministry, some other enormous demanding activity. God has helped me a lot with free-floating guilt, and I feel pretty close to being healed of such high requirements for acceptance. A growing awareness that God will accept me, that he may not have a demanding work for me to do, that he will welcome me with open arms if I'm only able to be faithful to my family, to, to Jerry and to Jenny, my daughter. As I wrote those words, this is still a quote from the book, warmth I'd never felt before began at the top of my head and flowed through every inch of my being. In one swoop through my being, God's love filled my heart. He was smiling at me. His arms were open as I walked into his embrace. It was the revelation of the Father's love that I'd been asking for. In the 37 years since that day, I've never seriously doubted his love. That revelation grounded me in a way I had not been grounded before, even though I'd submitted to his lordship. And we need to understand that love is not just endless support for doing what we feel like doing, even strong feelings. And I was convicted deeply a couple of weeks ago of some sinful fear. The conviction of that sin is part of love. I felt the Father's love in that conviction. It clarified some things, some responsibilities. I was grateful for his fatherly correction. That correction is a crucial part of the love of the Father. As it says in Hebrews 12:5, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his child. It says, my child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he receives as his child. Many of us don't really know his love. We believe in our heads but not our hearts. Spiritual growth is that movement from our head to our gut. So pray for that revelation of the love of the Father. I, you know, I think I would guess 50 to 75% of Christians don't know, don't have a real personal experience of the love of the Father. So keep praying until he answers. Keep asking. Every Christian deserves to know the personal love of the Father. So now, the third revelation that leads to an abundant life with God, the revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, I was at Urbana Assembly of God when I heard this teaching. <laughs> the Assemblies of God denomination arose from the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles that began in 1906 and continued to 1915. In that revival, there was a new emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second experience after salvation. 
And if I recall correctly, Assembly of God, Christians believe there's always some evidence of receiving the baptism and the ability to pray in tongues is the classic kind of evidence, expectation. Tongues is a language that bypasses our minds. It's the Holy Spirit praying through us according to the will of God. But that's controversial. <laughs> some Christian don't believe in, Christians don't believe in tongues at all. They don't believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They might use language of being filled with the Spirit, but they mean something like, I pray every morning to be filled with the Spirit. I've heard people say that, who didn't use the language of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Or they may not use any language about the Holy Spirit at all. All that to say, the Holy Spirit's role in the life of a Christian has been widely debated. In my 45 years as a, as a Christian, as a believer, I've observed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning some kind of infilling experience with the Holy Spirit, makes the most difference when a Christian has been somewhat kind of slogging along for, for a few years. And, you know, they're a believer, but they're not that engaged with Jesus. A second experience of baptism in the Holy Spirit often makes a lot of difference in their life with God. They come into a new power and awareness of the love of their good Father. But I do want to start with a few scriptures that suggest that there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit. You can find them easily with a search for those words. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then there are several in Acts, in the account of the early church. Um, Acts 8, 15, 17, speaking of Peter and John. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, the early part, 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? He, they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. You know, I don't have a strong opinion about this, uh, how, it, how this all works, but I believe God somehow, by his Spirit, lives in us, those of us who have submitted ourselves to Jesus' Lordship. Seth might have a stronger opinion. He'll let you know later. <laughs> So here are three scriptures that speak more generally to the gift of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.14 says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Holy Spirit somehow has taken up residence in a Christian. Luke 11.13, If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. And yet, for me, part of the revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit is the power of praying in tongues. <clears throat> and I, I think Romans 8.26 and 27 is, just, is talking about tongues and, and other things, but probably also tongues. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts 
knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I do pray in tongues, which I was given when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit soon after I became a Christian. I remember a time many years ago when God seemed to remind me of the power of praying in tongues. I hadn't prayed in tongues much for a few years. But two situations arose, kind of serious situations, where I, I just didn't know how to pray. And with some desperation, in each situation, I prayed for maybe half an hour in tongues. And each situation was resolved in quite unusual ways. I don't remember the details. What I remember is the power of praying in tongues. But it's not just the power of praying in tongues that I'm thinking about when I think about the revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm suggesting, suggesting something broader, more encompassing of our whole lives. I'm thinking about the ability to respond to God's kindness, to cooperate with him in our growth and holiness and wholeness. I'm thinking about what Paul says in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit in 522. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of sanctification. He's talking about our growth in the fruit of the Spirit. That's 523. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. That is, the power of the Holy Spirit in us will grow us into holiness. He will change us. Yes, we need to cooperate with him, but the power is from him. This is one of my life scriptures, this, this one, others like it, ones that encourage me that it's not all on me. He's at work within us by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Because I struggled a lot in my early years with anxiety and shame. I was terrified that I wouldn't be accepted, that I would get to the judgment seat and Jesus would say, ha ha, not good enough. Finally, after years of prayer and related to that revelation of the, the love of the Father, I determined that the Holy Spirit knows me. He knows, if he knows me, he knows how to speak to me. Through circumstances, a small voice, the scriptures coming alive, other Christians saying the right words at the right time, sometimes a thought that doesn't go away. And having spoken, the all-powerful God, the Holy Spirit, could give me the power to obey. That process of growth in understanding and wisdom about the power of the Holy Spirit is an example of a slow kind of revelation of his power. By his work in my heart, I got to the place of trusting that God's got me. We are his project, and he will direct our lives in every way. Our responsibility is to stay yielded, to stay open to that process, to actively seek holiness. A specific example of how God can speak and of his power Twelve years ago, I was 30 pounds overweight. I was a psychotherapist sitting in a chair all day, getting no exercise. I began to have an insistent thought. You need to get some weight-bearing exercise. After a few weeks of that recurrent thought, a plan came to me of a morning walk. Now, you have to understand, I am not an exerciser. I do not like it. <laughs> I was very resistant, and yet God gave me the power to change. And I began doing that almost daily walk. And that led to other changes in diet and all of that. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm only a couple pounds overweight. <laughs> and I continue to walk. 
And, it, and as it turns out, if I'd not started walking 12 years ago, I'd be on strong medicine for porous bones. Because I didn't know that my bones needed strengthening, but they did, as it turns out. So thank you, Jesus. And I've also grasped that my acceptance by God is not dependent on my obedience. I am, you are, as Ephesians 1, 6 says, accepted in the beloved. That's the King James Version. We are accepted in the beloved, and he himself gives us the power to rest in his acceptance. Because it's only in the soil of that acceptance that change can grow. There's a paradox for you. Acceptance first, change second. And change makes me think of the psychotherapy community that I was part of for many years. And many secular therapists seem to think, seem to believe that people actually don't change. They can help clients understand themselves better, develop self-awareness. They don't, they don't generally expect real change. That's been my understanding. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's my understanding. Now, I'm all for self-understanding, and sometimes insight itself is healing. But real change, change that involves growth and love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. I'm a pretty good exhibit of God's power at work in a life. <laughs> Some of you heard my husband Jerry stand up a couple weeks ago to say, Karen could have been a bad bag lady. She was pretty bad off 40 years ago, and it's true. The older I get, the more I marvel at what God's done in my life. Not without much travail, years of prayer, tons of emotional support from others, and a continual yielding to his will. Sure, I'm still more anxious and controlling than I want to be, and sometimes that leads to sin. But I'm not on the streets, and I could have been. This is where I plug my free book, although Seth has already plugged it. So <laughs> it's available if you want it. <laughs> I still have a few to give away. So the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me wrap this up. I think the most powerful and deepest work the Holy Spirit does in us is to give us the power to forgive. Everyone has been sinned against. The call to forgiveness is so deep. It's a call to spiritual and emotional maturity. Who forgives life-altering sin except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody wants to forgive. We want blood. We want them to suffer like we've suffered. We don't even want to think about serious sins against us. We don't want to think about the sexual abuse, the physical beatings, the ridicule, the bullying. We don't want to feel those feelings. We didn't want to develop any empathy for the perpetrator. Why should we feel anything for the pain in their lives? They have no idea of the cause, the pain they've caused us. We don't want to cancel the debt. They owe us. They ruined our lives. We would have been somebody completely different if they'd not sinned against us. We wouldn't have sinned so much ourselves. We'd have been able to pay more attention in school. We'd be able to work harder. We wouldn't be so anxious. It goes on. And yes, that's true. And yet, the Holy Spirit wants to give us the power to begin or continue that process of forgiveness because it's a crucial part of growth and holiness and of the abundant life. Some of you have heard me tell this story be before. Ten years after I began a process of forgiving my father for sexual abuse, 
I woke up one morning saying to God, I hate my father. I'll hate him to my grave. I would kill him if I could. And I will hate him to my grave unless you deliver me. And as the days went on, I continued to remind God he had to give me the power to finish forgiving. And that's our responsibility to ask, to pursue the power. A few months later, I woke up one morning and the hatred was gone. I can't tell you what happened other than God did it. So three revelations, the Lordship of Jesus, the love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. So ask and keep asking for genuine revelation. The abundant life that Jesus promises us is really not possible without those revelations. So we're going to go to communion now. And as Seth said, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, we invite you to join us at the table in the back. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like sometimes, you are a good God. You've promised an abundant life. We want that abundant life. We pray for grace to seek you for it. We pray for grace to pray for revelation of your love, of your lordship, of your power. Meet us at communion. Speak again of who you are and who we are in your name.